All right, church, why don't we stand and read Genesis 3.16? <laughs> to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, as you know from the preparations this week, we're reading one verse. We're going to be more extensive than that, but this is ultimately the verse we're going to land at. And it's very uh, brief and very to the point, but very profound in the way relationships are lived out as we seek to honor you in marriage. So we pray, God, for your Holy Spirit's wisdom as we go forward. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as promised, uh, we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about marriage. And those of us who happen to be married, uh, we know both what an amazing privilege it can be and blessing when things are going really well. <laughs> but we also know what a struggle and heartbreak it also can be when we're going through really hard times and tough seasons. Now, I'm not sure where all of you are at currently in your marriage. I know some of your situations, but not all. And uh, regardless of where you're at, though, today, my prayer is for you over the next couple of weeks is that uh, as we learn from the Word of God, this is a source of encouragement to you, maybe conviction if necessary, and hope. Encouragement to keep embracing what you've already been doing, conviction if you've not been functioning within God's design, and hope if you're in a tough season of life. This also, I think, speaks to those who are single in our church who are thinking about marriage and hope to have that one day because it gives you an insight into God's design, His purpose, and helps you prepare for what's ahead and also in how to choose a lifelong partner. Now I will say, uh, for, for, you know, due to extenuating circumstances, my brain has been a foggy this week, <laughs> needless to say, and uh, normally I'm really well prepared and thought out and pretty confident when I walk into the, the pulpit of what I'm about to say. Today is not as clear. It's been a kind of a interesting week in terms of how my head's been working. So uh, if I lose you at any point or it's not flowing the same way as normal, then I apologize. But uh, I work out the kinks with you guys. <laughs> and second service, we'll get a much more refined me. So, uh, but hopefully under God's provisions, it'll be clear. So let's begin with God's design and purpose for marriage. And we're going to look at Genesis 1.26. 126. In 126, it says this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Go to verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The first thing I want you to notice here is that both the male gender and the female gender are equally made in the image of God. Equally made in the image of God. It's not that a man is more in the image of God than a woman or vice versa. Why would I say that? Because when you first read it, when he says, let us make man in our image, and then it says in 27, God created man in his own image, you'd think, well, it's the man who's in his image, but the woman's not. Later on, he distinguishes, he says, he made them in his image. This is important because what we find then 
within the marriage uh, union, with a male and female, both equality as image bearers of God, but yet diversity as image bearers of God. Equality, but diversity. Which means there's no space in the Christian mindset to suggest the superiority of one gender over another or the uniformity of the two genders. The fact that we are created with equality and yet with diversity should be of no surprise to us though. Because this is the essence of who God is. You see, you notice in verse 26, he said, Let us, plural, make man in our plural image. Not let me make man in my image. This is important because within the Godhead, the way we understand it is we have God as a being who exists in plurality. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we use the word Trinity in um, our, our context in Christian circles, even though the word Trinity never exists in the Bible. But we've come up with that uh, terminology. So this is important. It makes sense then that if God is a plural, he's he's a, he, there's equality in the Godhead, but there's diversity in roles. And so we see this in place like uh, Corinthians 11 verse 3. This is important. Look at the difference in the roles uh, to some degree, even though there's equality. He says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. So Jesus Christ is my authority. And the head of the woman is man. So in God's economy, I'd be the head of Janice. But the head of Christ is God. So Jesus is under the Father's authority. Now this is really cool because in the Godhead, I'll never forget David Jackman, he's from England, and he came to preach uh, a dance church and also in our houseboat, and he gave a tremendous example, for those of you who are there, of a triangle. If you have an equilateral triangle, you put God at the top and say Jesus on the left and Holy Spirit on the right, they're equal. An equilateral trial is equal. So, but you can turn it to the left, turn it to the left, turn it to the left, and the people on the, on the triangle change positions. But their quality never changes, no matter which way you turn the triangle. It's always in the same position. It's always the same. There's a quality through the whole thing. And yet there's a distinction, clearly in the Bible, in terms of role. The Spirit has a role that Jesus doesn't have, and Jesus has a role that God doesn't have, and so the Father doesn't have, and so on and so forth. So as image bearers then of God, it makes sense that we, created in His image, would therefore have equality both made in this image, but have diversity. There's different roles we have to play within the marriage unit for it to function. And I think this is really important. So now turn to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. After God creates man and woman on day 6, He then puts Adam in the garden. And in 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So here we have Adam now working. He's working and he's doing, he's, he's basically tending to what God created. He's allowed to be a creator within creation. God made things, put them into motion, but he says, Adam, you go ahead and start creating within my creation. This kind of cool concept. We talked about this in prayer about partnering with God uh, a few months ago. But then God makes a profound statement in verse 18. He says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a help, him a helper suitable for him. 
a helper suitable for him. Now, what did he mean by helper? Well, let me deal with a pretty important issue within, the, within our framework as being followers of Christ. When God made Adam first, he definitely was to be the head of Eve. He was created first, and we see here in 1 Corinthians 11.3 that the head of the woman is man. The problem is when men think, well, <laughs> I am the authority figure, I'm the head, and she's just this teeny, weeny little helper on the side with a secondary role that's not important to God. And therefore, we have this idea that she's a secondary role, therefore she's to serve me, to wait on me hand and foot, and so on and so forth. If, you're a, if you are a follower of Christ and you have that thinking in your head, then get that out of your head. That is not God's intention by the word helper. Did you know that the Hebrew word for helper, ezer, is used 18 times in the Old Testament? 13 of those 18 are used to describe God himself and his very character. 13 out of 18, God says, I'm a helper. I'm a helper. So, in what way is he a helper? Well, I'll show you three references in the scriptures, but basically it's a military term. He uses himself as a deliverer or a rescuer of someone in need, in a time of need. Consider these verses. Oh, actually I showed you that earlier. <laughs> that was the, the order of how God has set up a family uh, unit. Okay? 18, Exodus 18.4. This is, this is uh, Noah, or not Noah, this is Moses. Moses speaking of his son. He says, his son's name, he had more than one son, but he said, the other son was named Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help, same word in Hebrew, and that delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. You talk about being a time of need. <laughs> Israel around the Red Sea. Pharaoh comes on and God, the helper in that moment. You know what's cool? Eliezer is the name of his son and the word is Ezer in Hebrew. So he basically added a few uh, letters to the word Ezer and created his son's name as the Lord is my help. Consider these verses in Deuteronomy 33.7. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, O people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread upon their high places. How about Psalm 70, verse 5? But I am afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Do you understand the picture, men? Your, the wife is not your servant. She's a powerful aid to help you and come alongside you, to help you walk through life, and to deliver you, be a shield to you in times of need. She's to help you fill God's mission and purpose in this world, because God knows you need help. And here's what's cool. As men, you go, well, God is the head, so I'm the head, so I'm an authority figure. God's also the helper. It makes sense then, if you're created in His image, if we're created in this image, male and female, that both the man and woman will reflect aspects of his character. So man, you're the head as God is the head, and woman, you're the helper as God is the helper. Equal but distinct in role. How is the woman the helper? 
<laughs> well, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. I guess, I mean, there's books written on that. You go and research that. But I'm going to give you two ways that I think a, a woman is an incredible helper. Number one is in the area of wisdom. Proverbs 19:14. Houses and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a wise wife is from the Lord. Houses and wealth, the things that we strive after in this world, often in terms of financial gain, are inherited from, from parents, but a wise wife is from the Lord. So wisdom is key. And Bryce, uh, that you heard preach here, and Dan and I were sitting around on Wednesday, and I brought up my sermon and kind of passed it by them and said, can I pass this idea of helper by you and what you think? And they agreed in terms of how I came to the conclusions on, these, on what a helper is. And then talked about how important their wives have been from keeping them from making stupid decisions in their life. They've been the voice of reason, especially in relationships where we want to bore straight ahead into like, into like putting our foot down and the wife goes, hold on a second, have you considered what's going to happen if you do this? And we go, hey, I never thought of it that way. Right? Not only, but it's not just relationships. Uh, they're, they're phenomenal at times in helping us with, um, you know, uh, financial decisions and administrative tasks and so on. The list is endless in how wives can be a help. They even help us mature in our faith. They can be tremendous aids in helping us mature in our faith and be a source of wisdom in a time of uh, misunderstanding maybe the Lord's uh, desire for our lives. So again, this idea that we're the head of the home doesn't mean that the husbands have all the ideas, doesn't mean they have all the brains, doesn't mean they take all the initiative, make all the decisions, but rather he's just responsible and accountable for the family. That's what it is. And we're going to talk about how he's to lead and be um, the head of his home next week in more detail. But the word helper, I think, can be defined in our context even more so. In the context of Genesis 1 and 2, we see Adam at work. And he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, I used to think, and used to preach, that even at my, all the weddings I've done, which is only, I guess, I've only done one wedding and uh, the renewal of Darcy and Callie's, but I preached the same idea twice, that it was good for man not to be alone means he's good to, for him to have a companion and an emotional need. Well, that is true, but I actually missed the, the point of the whole passage. God has put Adam in place to do what? To work in the garden. But look, it's more than that. Look at 126. Genesis 126. God said, let us make them in our image. Let them, plural, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and every creepy thing that moves on the earth. Now look at verse 28. He said, He blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Man cannot, on his own, fulfill God's mandate. Go ahead, man, be fruitful and multiply. Good luck. Good luck subduing this world all on your own and ruling over God's dominion all on your own. I'll tell you what the world would be like. Worse than it is now. This is really important. First command to be a helper. You produce life. You produce life. 
But not only this, help them rule. Well, how would they rule in this way? Well, again, when the women are producing life, I mean, we know from the scriptures that God's primary role for them is to raise family. It's primarily to raise family. So when you train up your children, you're training them up to do what? To fulfill God's mandate. You're teaching your girls and your boys how to look towards God's uh, mission to be fruitful and multiply, make that a priority in the kids' lives, and teaching them how to work when they go out into the world to fulfill God's, God's mandate. Someone might say, well, is it really that big a deal that we be fruitful and multiply and we train up children to think in God's design? Huh. You know that we're in a global crisis right now? Do you know what the global crisis is? Well, I'll tell you. BBC News wrote an article in July of 2020. The author's name was James Gallagher. The title is Fertility Rate, Jaw-Dropping Global Crash in Children Being Born. In quoting researchers who, who study this, he said this. The world is ill-prepared for the global crash in children being born and the effects on society. This is secular. This is not a Christian article. 23 nations are expected to see populations halved by the end of the century. Spain, Italy, China. They gave the example of Japan. 128 million people there right now expected by the end of the century to reach 61 million. The professor who was in charge of the research says, we will, he says, quote unquote, we, have to, we will have to reorganize society due to the huge increase in elderly and the absence of young people. He gave these questions, great questions. Who will pay the taxes in an elderly age population? You think taxes are bad now? Imagine having an imbalance of, of older to younger generation. Who's going to pay those taxes? Number two, who pays for the health care for those elderly people? Number three, who looks after them? <laughs> Number four, will people be able to retire from work? What's driving it? Well, they said contraception is playing a role because you have more access to it more freely in other countries. But you know what it primarily is? Women are primarily seeking to be educated so that they can be career women. Now, God is not opposed to education. He's not opposed to women holding jobs. We don't, we don't deny that either in uh, Genesis House. But where we have an issue is when they forsake the role of family for the sake of career. What's the solution? BBC article writes this. Well, right now, the only solution has been immigration. But other than that, we have no idea what to do. There's no answers. The smartest men and women in the world have no answer to this. Only immigration, but then they said this, eventually immigration will cease to be the answer because as the, as the people are immigrating are no longer young, there's no one left to immigrate because they're all elderly. So it's only a temporary solution. Well, gee, I wonder what would be a good solution. Maybe uh, going God's way with Genesis 1, 26 and 27. 
That seems like a good idea to me. Okay, and let's get back to our text. Look at verse 24 and 25. Eve now has been brought to Adam, and he's pumped. Basically, in 23, he basically he's yelling out a big yippee. That's his way of saying yippee when he sees her. And then, and then God makes this declaration for the goals of marriage. He says in 24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I've heard different understandings of what he's saying here. Um, I've heard uh, pastors say things like, What's going on here is a public declaration, a public declaration of marriage, a permanent declaration in marriage, and a physical union showing, demonstrating marriage. Um, you may have other ways of understanding this, and I would love to hear them, because I, I'm going to give you mine, and uh, it's, um, you know, there could be better options for understanding this, and I'm open to hearing them. But let me show you how I think this is to be best understood. I'm going to get rid of this thing. Oh, what happened there? Yeah, there we go. Independence. The goal of marriage. Independence. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother. What do I mean by this? You make a new distinct family unit. You break the bond with your closest relationship you've had your whole life, which is your parents, and now you, you are severed from them to be allegiant to your wife or your husband. It's a new bond, a new family unit. And all of us have had to work through this as newlyweds, even, and actually not just newlyweds, but just in marriage in general. And all of you know that, uh, especially in the first few years, Christmas was a great time to discover this. <laughs> Christmas is the best test for this, especially your first year of marriage. Well, the in-laws have invited me on Christmas Eve for dinner, and, my, and uh, the husband or the wife go, well, that's not what we always do at Christmas time. My mom and dad think we're coming to their house. And the fight starts. And every year there's a power struggle between the in-laws, who become outlaws very quickly, because of this whole conversation, and it's still maybe having a conversation about in your family even to this day, even if you're 10, 20, 30 years in. So independence, we're to break from the family unit and start a new bond. Interdependence, and he may be joined to his wife. Interdependence as opposed to codependence. Codependence is characterized by an imbalance in a relationship where one enables another to continue in a pattern of sin whether it be addiction or immaturity. And so that person is constantly seeking to cover up or protect or rescue their partner from, uh, from the potential embarrassment and to hide everything they're doing. And it comes at a personal cost to themselves. But interdependence is more like mutual dependence, where there's two healthy individuals who come together to form a common bond in a whole. So they're equal contributors to the relationship. One's not trying to protect or take care of the other due to the circumstances in the relationship. And we know tons of relationships. And we can even go through seasons of life in our own marriages where we start off interdependent, but we slowly become codependent. And so we have to think in these terms. Another huge sermon all to itself. Actually, all these things are sermon on themselves. Intimacy. They shall become one flesh. Well, ultimately the culmination of intimacy is a sexual union. 
But of course, intimacy will include much more than that. But still, we have to work through these issues as many of us bring in a lot of hurts and pains and different expectations in these areas. And these will affect our innocence. The man shall be with his wife, or so the man and his wife are both naked and we're not ashamed. You know, a lot of times because of our past relationships and different hurts and intimacy, we have lost our innocence. Right? Another, like nakedness in front of your partner is an embarrassing thing. Right? It's not something you're comfortable with. Or just any other kind of, maybe even just physical touch in general is just very difficult, of any kind is just very diff difficult. Or public displays of affection, you know, or make you uncomfortable, so on and so forth. There's so many things that can steal our innocence. And I got me thinking, was there ever a time, is there a time in anyone's life where we could be fully innocent the way God intended with Adam and Eve? And I thought, isn't it interesting, two year, two, kids two years old and under can run around naked no problem. <laughs> If I took all of our kids that were tuned under and threw them in Genesis' house, they would keep their clothes on. They'd be running around and we'd all be laughing at them. And they think they actually think it's funny. So what's cool is this. It is possible for a human to be at that stage in life. So what's amazing is things change as they get older. But that gives you a picture of what it could be like in heaven in terms of that all being gone. Or what it was like for Adam and Eve. They almost had a two-year-old mindset and in innocence in, the, in this area of life. Isn't that cool? To think about that you could be 20, 30, 40 and be like a two-year-old in your freedom? You know, it's kind of neat to think that way. So the million-dollar question is, are we going to be naked in heaven or not? <laughs> That's another sermon about this. Okay. So let's think it's important to say this, though, too. That even though this is God's ideal, no one's ever met it. Not even Adam and Eve met this ideal. If they did, it lasted for days or weeks or months, but that was over quickly. So this is what we're striving for. This is God's big picture goal for our marriage. And so we may never get 100% in these areas, but we, we want to strive to become independent, interdependent, intimate, and innocent in our relationships. That's the goal of marriage. One of the goals of marriage, I should say. Next week, we'll cover some more. So what happened then? What happened to this wonderful picture? Well, Genesis 3, 1 to 5. I won't read it, but you know it well. Satan enters the picture, and he comes at God's most precious, precious social institution. He attacks marriage union. And he comes at him with three spheres of influence. Number one, he casts doubt on God's word. It makes him look restrictive. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any of the trees? Which was a lie, by the way. They were only not to eat from one. Number two, there's no consequences to disobeying God. Verse, that's in verse 4. You shall not surely die. In other words, there's no penalty to going against God's way. And number three, God's a spoil sport. Verse 5. He doesn't really want you to have his best in life. Or even enjoy life or have, make it fun. If you want to be truly free from God, or truly free in this world, get from out from underneath his thumb so that you can experience life. This is the root of all sin. Yes. This doesn't, this, it's not just marriage and the way it affects us. It's the root of every sin. Doubt God's word. He's restrictive. There's no consequences for not going his way. And he's a spoil sport. You interject now that BBC article. You think about that now in those three categories. That's why the world's in a global crisis. They've fallen for this tactic. 
So what does it lead to? Shame and blame. Shame on two fronts. First, first front is with each other. In verse 7, read it with me in chapter 3. The eyes of them were both opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So the innocence in marriage that was once there, the intimacy, the closest, gone. To, at least to like, the degree it was originally had. To what degree, I don't know, but it's gone to some degree. They, they can't be each other's presence anymore. Innocence and intimacy, the presence of one another is now embarrassing. It's, it's uncomfortable. And so they hide from each other. But then they also do this with God in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of God. And when he comes to him and finds Adam, he says, where were you? He says, I was afraid. I was afraid of you. So at one point, God's presence is welcome. And it's a great thing to be with him. Now, his presence is something to be feared as opposed to being something that's welcome. And the knowledge of his presence makes them escape their accountability. So that's the shame on two fronts. What about the blame? Well, Adam, when he's called to account, blames God for giving him Eve. The yippee verse he was yelling out earlier, this is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and he was pumped to see her. He's now blaming God for giving her him to her. And Eve blames Satan for what happened. What would have God wanted? For both of them to take personal responsibility for their failure in the marriage. He would have wanted both of them to take personal responsibility for what went wrong in the marriage. But they blame. They would not say it's me. They would say it's you. So what does God do? He brings justice. Verse 16. We finally arrived at the pinnacle verse. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. And your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. This is often referred to the cur- as the curse in the Bible. The curse. Adam and Eve, you know, and the curse. It was Laura that opened my eyes to this. And uh, I'm grateful for her for showing me, talking to me about this. You know, I went through and, and looked, and you know that Adam and Eve weren't actually cursed? Look at where the curse was. Verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all the cattle. Then look at verse 17 to Adam, you shall not eat from the ground, cursed is the ground because of you. Who were the two things cursed in this passage? The ground and Satan. Adam and Eve aren't cursed. Another sermon. What they do have, though, is consequences for sin. Consequences for sin. This is partly why I couldn't get my sermon done the way I wanted to, because I was so interested in this topic that I spent too much time researching and kind of put myself behind the eight ball a little bit. Interesting study, though. Okay, so he says this. Your desire, Eve, this will be the consequence. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This word desire, um, you know, uh, means to long for in Hebrew. To long for. Now, 
all of us might think, well, maybe it's a like, sort of like, again, back to the intimacy thing, it's a woman's desire for the husband in an intimate kind of way, if you go to the sort of like the sexual context, and I always think, well, that wouldn't be much of a curse, would it? That'd be more of a blessing if that was the reality, especially for the guys. Maybe it's a curse for the girls after all, but anyway. But uh, yeah, so, any, um, but yeah, so that's not likely what's going on here at all. That's not the power struggle we often see in a, in a marriage. The word desire is actually used in chapter 4, verse 7. It's when Cain is, wants to kill Abel, and God knows that that's in his heart. And so he says in verse 6, actually, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will your, not, will your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and his desire is for you. Cain's desire, this longing in the flesh to go after his brother because of his, oh, that angst in him, is the desire, I think, that he's talking about here. It's a desire in a negative, sort of unhealthy way, as opposed to, so it's a longing for, it's a longing for the rule that he has in the family as the head. This word rule actually means to govern or to have dominion over. It's used in Genesis 24-2 to describe Abraham's servant who had, quote-unquote, charge of all that he had. And of Joseph in Genesis 45-8, who had, quote-unquote, been appointed as ruler over the land of Egypt. So it's to have dominion or, or, or um, um, over, or to actually have, like, a, a, be in charge of. So what we see then here, what's going on is a power play. God has given the, the man the, the responsibility of taking the ownership, like ownership and privilege of leading the family in these ways. That's his God-given right. But the woman, in consequence, will want to overthrow and to always like, try to like, challenge that. Now, I know that gives a bit of a negative picture of um, marriage. But again, we're going to talk about the cure as a believer to this later on. There's, God gives a, a really tremendous way of counteracting this. So he's a God of justice. We're gonna see his mercy next week and how he wants us to play out. But William Taylor from England, another great pastor, great teacher, summarized this struggle in this way. And I could not do better than an Englishman. And, uh, and making this clear. This is the desire rule conflict that we have, the trouble. The wife will find herself wanting to resist her husband's leadership, to strike out on her own, develop her own independent agenda, and subtly manipulate her husband's rule. That is the temptation in every woman's like flesh as a result of the consequence of sin. The man, the husband, will find himself unreasonable, self-serving, and treating his wife as little more than a useful accessory to make his own life easier. Spoken by William Taylor from England. That is the root, the root fight that we all have as followers of Christ in how we relate in marriage. And I think he nails it. He nails it. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip to the, the lessons because I did want to talk about uh, what it means to um, the first part of the, the consequence about greatly multiplying your pain in childbirth. I got all the notes on it. I, you know, we got an hour, so I'll have to avoid it. But um, I'd love to have that conversation with you guys at some point over coffee. And it's a pretty cool study as well.
um, what this pain is referring to and uh, what he actually means by this, but uh, we'll move on. So, sometimes, you know, church, it's hard to talk about some of these issues in marriage because there's a lot of pain in the, in the past, there's things we're working through, there's fear, there's some shame that goes on about some things, and so it's often uncomfortable and difficult to talk to your partner about this. But let me just say this. Why don't you use this sermon as a springboard to having these hard conversations? Wherever you're at, even if you're in a good place, have, use this sermon as a springboard. Make me, in God's word, the scapegoat for opening up this dialogue. Again, as a partner, it's hard because sometimes you want, when do I talk about these things and when do I not? And I don't want to upset the boat and et cetera, et cetera. Use me and use God's word as a springboard to have these conversations. And I started off writing lessons. I had about six lessons I was going to go through. I thought, no, I'm going to ditch the lessons. I want to end with asking questions. Questions to spark conversation. Here's question number one, surrounding Genesis 3, 7, and 14 about the blame and shame game that Adam and Eve did. In what ways have shame and blame entered into your marriage? What are some of the recurring themes or issues you're dealing with over the course of one year or six weeks or 20 years that keep coming up, keep coming up? And if, and if only you would have done this, and if only you would have done that, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, what, what areas of blame are there? You know, you're at fault because you did this or you said that and so on and so forth. Important conversations. In dealing with the issues though, look what Adam and Eve did. They said, God, it's your fault. The woman said, it's Satan's fault. And that's what we do in marriage. If my wife would only, if my husband would only, what did God want from Adam and Eve? Personal responsibility between them and God first to work it out in the relationship after. If the shame blame game has been going on, deal with you first and not she or he. Next question. These stem from the four eyes, I call them, in Genesis 2. But again, the other guy called them the three Ps. So you do what you want with that. But independence. Are there current issues or situations affecting the independence of your own marriage? Are there ways right now even after 20, 30 years where the family unit that you have is secondary to maybe your spouse's primary unit that came from? Is there ways you communicate? Are there ways that um, you're, you're, you know, maybe uh, um, you know, the, um, the wife is uh, you know, tied to the family of origin and she keeps making decisions and then informing her husband later about what she's decided for the family in relation to her parents. Or vice versa. The, the husband is making decisions with his parents or, you know, and then telling his wife what's happening later. This is backwards how God wants it. You're to leave and cleave the family of origin. Leave your father and mother. It's not just physical, it's emotional. It's primarily emotional. Where do you go to for your comfort and support? Again, we can still, can, can we identify these areas? 
If family ties are not cut fully and you're not the primary spouse, your spouse will feel neglected. I absolutely guarantee it. Men and women will feel like they're second to your family of origin. That's a killer in marriage. Is your relationship with your spouse mutually dependent? Are you interdependent or is it codependent? Is one spouse constantly trying to rescue, protect and cover the other person's sin and inadequacies? Or are you equally contributing to and supporting one another? How about in the area of intimacy? How would you describe this with your spouse? Are there any past hurts? Are there any wounds affecting your current state? Maybe, maybe there's medical conditions you're facing where like, you know, everything's been sort of kind of lost a little bit because of things you're going through and it's really dampering things up. And so you have to look for new ways to uncover how to feel connected in these ways. Are there fears and insecurities surrounding this whole area and so therefore it makes you kind of timid and then therefore affecting the relationship? Have any of these issues impacted the innocence of your marriage? Maybe you just so strongly desire to be that little two-year-old kid running around, but you're just, everything's been stolen from you. And you need to work through those things with your partner. And finally, to the wives, in terms of Genesis 3.16, and the desire rule issue. Wives, in what ways have you found yourself wanting to resist your husband's role as the head? In what ways are you tempted to strike out on your own and develop your own independent agenda? How would you, if you were to do, go, to, go about doing so, subtly try to manipulate your husband's rule? And men, in what ways are you known to be unreasonable to deal with? If I took your wife privately, behind closed doors and said, tell me what it's really like to be with him. <laughs> what would we hear? No holds barred. What areas do you consistently, sorry, yeah, what areas do you consistently prove to be self-serving in? In what ways do you demonstrate that you see her as nothing more than a useful accessory to make, her own, make your own life easier? Here's my important question for me after discovering what helper means. Has your previous understanding as your wife as helper had any influence in the way you treated her? How will God's new understanding of helper now change the way you treat her? Amen.